Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Crane. You can follow all of my content at legendaryupside.com. And with me today is Mike Leone of Establish the Run. Leone, how's it going? It's going really well. Excited to be on uh, your show for the first time. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And we're going to be talking about your Best Ball Manifesto article that you have out on Establish the Run for free, right? Anyone can, uh, can check this out. Yep, it's a free article. I've got three parts up now. I'm hoping to have part four up tomorrow, which would be uh, the 20th of April, 420. And uh, I'm excited for it to be released. I'm excited to be done with it for a while because it's like one rabbit hole after another, like going through this article. Yeah, it's uh, we're going to talk through the article. We're going to have to like skip some stuff because there's like there's a ton of various uh ways and edges that you've identified uh things you should be thinking about as you draft best ball mania teams there's almost too many things to do in one draft which uh i'm kind of using as a tease because in this part four you are going to be grading some of these teams and using the the things you've identified as edges and you're saying before we started that not every single thing that you cover in this uh, best ball manifesto needs to be done for a team to be graded pretty well. It's sort of almost like there's different ways to create really strong teams. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I think your team's a good example of it. Your team that won where, you know, you, you know, it, like two quarterbacks versus three in isolation two is better. For example, um, in general, spending more on wide receiver early instead of running back early makes made sense last year, at least overall. And you spent running back early but your team collectively made a ton of sense like you didn't devote a lot of running back draft capital even though you took two early you stacked up all three of your quarterbacks you game stacked two of them for week 17 which you know we'll see in the article definitely improves your expected value when you go to the playoffs so like you ticked a lot of important boxes you got a lot of closing line adp value overall even though if you're to look at like just the pure roster construction stuff, especially is like so swayed by individual performances from last year. And it's also impossible to do it all correctly all at once that, um, yeah, you know, I think people, you know, your, your team might not look good if you just purely looked at those segmentations, but when you look at it holistically, it was definitely a really solid team. Um, and a $2 million winning team. Yeah. But it wasn't uh, a perfect team by this, by these measures, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, and I think that's, that's cool, right? Like you don't have to do everything perfect. You want to be putting yourself in really good position. Uh, before the show, you're saying by one measure, it was, my team was kind of like in the 64th percentile, but another was in the 80th, depending on how you look at the, the ADP value that it got. But still, I mean, it's not, um, you know, you don't have to draft like one of these 99th percentile teams, I guess you should aim to, but you know, you, you, uh, you, you you don't it's not salaries that you're picking from here the other people in the draft are gonna determine if you get things like adp value and stuff so as long as you're drafting sharply you'll probably be drafting a big bucket of positive ev teams which was which is what we're trying to do and there's different ways to do it let's talk about stacking first um this is one of the things that i did focus on a lot and this is more of optimizing for once you get to the playoffs so there's different things we can think through here advance rate which you you mentioned in the later part of the article is very important uh maybe underrated as we focus more and more on week 17 but 
once you get to the playoffs, it seems like being stacked, being game stacked for week 17 is actually really important. Yeah. And the way I looked at this was, you know, it's a really small sample if you just looked at the three playoff weeks last year. So I took all 17, I took all the playoff teams that made it past the regular season in Best Ball Mania 3. And then among those teams, I pretended that they basically were 17 different teams, one for each week. Each week could have been a playoff week and then saw, you know, for quarterfinals, you know, estimated quarterfinals win. Did they have a top 10% score? Because only one out of 10 advanced in the quarterfinals. For the semis, did they have a top one out of 16 score? For the finals, did they have a top one out of 470 score? So that kind of gives us 17 weeks of among the teams that were good enough to make it to the playoffs to get an idea of like, to try and tease out the importance of weekly upside and how much of that is controllable. And the game stacking definitely came into play. Um, it contributed, you know, higher rates across the board. If you looked at number of game stacked quarterbacks, it's, it's a very clear trend. Um, as far as the, the biggest impact was the finals, the final week for sure. But even like quarterfinals, semifinals, teams that didn't stack at all, you know, didn't have any team stacks, didn't have any game stacks. They lost about, you know, they're about 4% worse than a random team at getting through to the quarterfinals. Whereas a team that had two quarterbacks and game stacked them both would be about 11% increase in their odds of advancing. If they just stacked their two quarterbacks and didn't game stack, it's still a 4% increase. Um, yeah, and teams that didn't stack at all, like didn't even stack their own quarterback, like were at a, a really big disadvantage. So we saw that definitely come to fruition. But the finals for sure had the biggest impact, Pat, where if you didn't have any quarterback stack in the finals, you had a 33% reduction in your chances of winning like a 470-person field. Mm. Whereas if you had two quarterbacks and you game stacked them both, you had like a 39% increase in your chances of winning. Now we're dealing with small numbers. Like the baseline is like 0.21%, something like that. So, you know, that really good metric that I hit on for the two quarterbacks, both game stacked in week 17, you're up to 0.29%. Like it's still low, but yeah, but the relative increase is, is pretty large. And, um, when we talk about advance rates for regular season two, it's kind of interesting how, how these play off each other, but certainly when you put it all together, your expected value, once you reach the playoffs is way higher. If you're stacking. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I just watched Veep, uh, was rewatching Veep and there's a, a part where this guy, this data nerd is, is telling her that, you know, she's crushing in the battleground States and her visits. And then she's like, all right. And she like brings him in for leverage. And he explains that she's leading to a 0.09% bump. She's <laughs> like, that's not even a percent. He's like, well, we could round up. <laughs> so yeah. these are small edges, but in a 417 field, you, you, you know, you'll take the small edges. It, the way I hear this is like, if I can take a small edge in week 15 and it gets me, it helps me get me through. But that game stack is, you know, it's one less pick that I'm devoting to week 17 potentially. Then I'd much rather put that edge in week 17 and just hope I do get through. Because when I, when you're in week 17, that is where you want that that small little bump because you got to get to the top spots the way these payouts work. Yeah, this stuff, you know, it's hard because it's all it's small sample, right? Um, of 
and, and some of this happens by coincidence, right? Because I'm not looking at just week 17. I'm looking at game stacks for any particular week and like if a team could get there. So in some ways, like it could be better or worse. You could make arguments for if you've actually planned it versus these stacks that just happened sure. incidentally over the course of this season. And all said and done though, like of this seven of all these teams across 17 weeks, you know, less than 10% of them had two or three game stacks on a given week. So it is somewhat mm. small sample size, but yeah, you definitely see by far the biggest increase when you're looking at the finals. Um, so your game stacking, you know, if you can get a game stack in the semis and quarters, it's good, but you definitely would rather devote the game stack to the finals. And then just regular stacking is going to help you through the quarters and the semis to begin with. What do you think about the idea of, you know, if we're looking at DraftKings, which has some of their tournaments have smaller finals, you know, is that why you think that game stacking didn't show up is because it's a smaller round? Um, compared to 470 team field is it the size of the final that makes game stacking so much more important and then therefore it does game stacking become less important if you're in a on a site like DraftKings that might have a 20 man final some of the higher stakes stuff it's like 11 down to like 3 at that point is game stacking maybe something you deprioritize yeah it's hard for me to say because like I'm trying to think through this and I still don't know exactly why it works as pronounced and as clear as it works like if you look at the article and you just take away the numbers if you just look at the trend it's like every bucket the more the stacking the better so like mm. even if you say the numbers aren't overly precise because the small sample like it's a very clear trend i get confused sometimes so i think in dfs i'm like the smaller the field sometimes the more i want to stack right just because i get less things right and i don't have to yeah. be perfect and i guess a 470 person field if you're looking at the finals on underdog is still not that huge, but I do wonder, we if would still you're... play that as like a small field GPP in a, right. it's would. on the borderline, but, but I'd almost overstack. I'd have the inclination to overstack more in like a 16 person field versus okay. which, which might be wrong based on this data. There's also a lot of intricacies in terms of like how the best ball scoring works, right. That like, maybe is like tough to tease out individually. So for example, like you had a three quarterback team and two of them were game stacked for week 17. One was just regular stacked, but like that kind of gives you three outs to hit a huge ceiling. And I wonder if that kind of like impacts mm. the math a little bit versus like DFS, you're just picking one team. You know, there's no extra players that can like sneak in if the stack fails or something. I wonder if that, if there's just some sort of dynamic there that's that's hard to parse out that's affecting things so this data would suggest that you would not have to focus stacking as much on DraftKings, and in particular the game stacking edge would probably get reduced a little bit while the team stacking edge would still be pretty high but even in the 10 and 16 person fields you know adding in the game stack was additive in terms of okay. your expected value on top of the regular team stack, just not nearly as much as it was in the finals. Okay. Um, one thing that I ended up writing an article about after reading this first uh, part of your article was this idea of, Hey, okay. So, you know, even though three quarterbacks can work um, and I had three quarterbacks on my team, the data shows that two quarterbacks is way better. And that it's not just the data from your article, the data from uh, a lot of work that Sean Siegel has done has shown two quarterbacks is a, a better best ball 
build to then three. The work that I did last year had me on two quarterbacks. I was on two quarterbacks primarily. I was willing to experiment with three quarterbacks. I specifically liked the way kind of the pockets of the draft lined up with three quarterbacks and RBRB starts. But in general, I was not on three quarterbacks as like my primary option. And I'm still not. I think it's a good plan B. But plan A is kind of two quarterbacks. However, if we're trying to build in as many game stacks as possible, and the research showed, you know, if you have three quarterbacks, you do want to game stack all three. What do you think about the idea of, okay, I'll do two quarterbacks, but I'm still going to use three game stacks. I'm still going to try to build. I'm still going to try to grab, you know, Jamar Chase, Tyler Boyd, Irv Smith or whoever they drafted tight end. Mm -hmm. And I'll take a bring back on that. And yeah, I don't have Burrow. And if Burrow goes off, maybe I wish I had him. But the quarterback is the part I can replace the most easily. And Burrow's expensive. And so I'm replacing him as well with a skill player that also has the potential to blow up and and distance me from the Burrow, uh, the Burrow people. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. And this is something that's like, I think some of these smaller edges are really keen to take advantage of because it's it's hard to kind of parse them out right like it's it, it, just even with the data it's hard for me to be like find game stacks that didn't have the quarterback like it's just not easy to do and then stuff that's not easy to quantify people pay less attention to it doesn't mean it's less important and what we're seeing is correlation matters and basically you hit on it like the quarterback's the most replaceable part of the stack uh, especially if it's like a pocket passer you know, that, that you're stacking. And there's also just like mini correlations, right? Like, which I know, did. Yeah. Hunter Renfro and George Kittle. You got to get those minis. <laughs> hey, I mean that, that, that game actually kind of went off. Those it players did. did. Yeah. Those players did. didn't, but uh, the game did, but no, but for real though, like that's something that like, you know, I talked about, there's so many rabbit holes you could go down. Like that's one of them. It's just looking at mini correlations. So I think that, makes a lot of sense the other thing on the two quarterbacks versus three there's some in the way i did this i didn't do like simulate three weeks in a row and like kind of how the stages work and i do think there's some pro three quarterback stuff that gets lost by not doing that which is you know just anecdotally you and i both have had kind of like an unexpected quarterback performance in sort of these finals like allow us to even just advance through one of the stages so Sometimes I think we, we focus so much on upside, but like a little bit of safety and like covering your ass in some spots, like can help you just get out of a round, right? Like, for sure. where, yeah, we're like just having a really solid squad, like sometimes is better than having like, oh, this elite team, but there's a little bit, you know, might be super fragile in one area, even though it's a strong area. And then the uniqueness stuff where it's like, okay, that quarterback got you through which was like a check in the first place or else you'd be dead. But now you've also got, you know, for you, you had Tom Brady in the finals, right? And and we talked about the irony of it and you still won. So so we can talk about him in particular, but it kind of sucked that Daniel Jones went off for you because Tom Brady right. would have been this massive, massive edge because he was so low owned because no one advanced him, whereas a lot of people advanced Daniel Jones. So in a different world where Daniel Jones sucks that week, like, you, you win, you know, a little bit easier. You have, or at least you yeah. have a little bit more breathing room on stuff. So I do think there's some pro three quarterback stuff. And what's interesting is 
you know, I'll release part four tomorrow, but a lot of the best teams and we, we graded teams based on how good they were at the time of the draft only like based on the ADP available at their draft, you know, the stacking as it appeared at the draft. And so if you look at the very top teams, it's a pretty small sample, but like I'm looking at like the top 30 teams and more of them are three quarterback than two quarterback, despite the fact that the model knows that two quarterbacks in isolation is better than three quarterbacks. So I want to dig into that a little bit more, but I found that kind of interesting. And we talk about putting all the pieces together. Like you did really well on your team. You super intentionally were like, if I'm going to do running back heavy early, I need to do three quarterbacks because I can't get elite quarterback because I still need to spend at wide receiver. And I think that was like a hundred percent correct. Like I think your intuition lines up exactly with what the model is. Because I also on. detoured for elite tight end. That was the other part of it is that once you go, I think of like my early round picks as kind of detours away from wide receiver. And it's like, how many detours can I get away with? So I did two for running back. Um, I came back and got uh, DJ Moore. Uh, I took George Kittle, right? So then at that point, it's like the first running back, the first uh, quarterback that I took is Tom Brady because I've got to make sure I'm really behind the eight ball at that point at wide receiver is the way I look at it. I want to be very strong at wide receiver pretty much in all my drafts. I'm willing to push away from that, but I'm immediately going, oh God, oh God, I'm, I'm too weak at wide receiver. And so taking an elite quarterback there for me, now I did. It did work out that I, when in the round that I took Hunter Renfro, um, Trey Lance went before that, and I have looked at that and go, "You would have taken Lance. You had Kittle. <laughs> you would have taken Lance, wouldn't you? And we would have ruined this team." So thank you to whoever sniped me on Trey Lance, which uh, which led to helped me lead to the article where I said, "Please snipe me on my quarterbacks. I can build in correlation without it." Yeah, and I like that article a lot too because I think kind of what we're seeing is. ADP value matters, stacking matters a ton. And that just means you kind of want to be flexible in a draft to yeah. try and accomplish all those things simultaneously as best as you and, can. Yeah. And I will say with the quarterback stuff, like, you know, I took Tom Brady in that draft. Then I took Tua and I, and trust me, I checked this because Tyler Algier, who uh, was the pick after I took Daniel Jones went off in week 17 and I was a player I really liked. So, you know, on Sunday, I'm going, oh, God, should I have taken Algier? Did I need Jones? I did need Jones. I went, I went, I checked the math. I wouldn't have advanced without Daniel Jones in the first place. So I would say, like, with the two quarterback stuff, it's not that necessarily that two quarterbacks is just straight up better. It's that if you can build where you've got an elite quarterback and then you can save a roster spot, that's better. But you still got to have enough capital at the position where you're you're advancing. So three quarterback to me still looks like a very viable backup plan to the two quarterback build. Yeah. Honestly, like the way I'm looking at it, despite how, like when you segmented it out and it looks like two is that much better than three, I think I'm playing it pretty much by like, you know, by ear each draft yeah. itself. Like I, I probably slightly prefer to, I do think it was perhaps random that we had so many really high end QB scores from QBs not drafted super early in the playoffs. Cause sort of the, the idea behind drafting two is that it's better for the, the playoff weeks. Hertz would have gone off. Score. I mean, Hertz would have absolutely smashed. That seems yeah, so you weird would have had to me. Hertz. Yeah. Um, 
But I did look at these when I was looking at the structural data for positions, like not a lot of it translated to the playoffs and the two QB stuff, even accounting for like me doing it across all 17 weeks. I don't think it was like that impactful two versus three in the actual playoff weeks. I have to kind of like double check in my own article, but like spending at wide receiver was, you know, that translated a little bit more from regular season to playoffs. So the two QB stuff, it's weird because in my head, I think it's better for playoff upside where like you can hmm. have as take as many quarterbacks as you want. You're not going to match Jalen hurts. Right. Like that, right. that's sort of the theory. And maybe that's true. And it just didn't happen last year for whatever reason but again across 17 weeks it just like wasn't that big of a deal in the playoffs um as far as number of quarterbacks roster it was better to have two than three across the playoff weeks but it wasn't like a huge increase and like obviously you got you know 235 plus point performances from tom brady and daniel jones in week 17 which is kind of like that's the whole point of elite quarterback early is that like tom brady and and daniel jones can't do that uh, and then they did right so yeah. Um, and I think maybe that's part of it is that they can't do it, but then they did. And then it's like, well, who has the skill players? And my guess is that in the playoffs, it is a lot of who did you have the right skill players? Did you have the one tight end who scored a bunch of points this week? Did you have, you know, the Justin Jefferson week when you, did you did you not have Justin Jefferson when he tanked and, you know, a million, a million guys did have him or whatever? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think may, maybe it part of it is that quarterback is in some ways kind of the least important position. Yeah. And it's hard because we've even seen this transformation in DFS though, where it's like kind of got, you know, it used to be like never spend at quarterback and now it's like always spend at quarterback. So I do, I don't want to dismiss the two QB stuff. I was just surprised that running the estimated playoff rates across 17 weeks that it didn't seem to matter as much as I expected number of quarterbacks. It was definitely still better to have two in the playoffs. It just wasn't like a huge increase. I guess it was more like the quarterback's draft capital itself seemed to matter a little bit less in the playoffs. The the number rostered was still favored too. Um, so yeah, two is better than three, but it's, I think, a lot closer than like it looks if you just purely look at, you know, regular season advance rates on two versus three. Do you have any early reads on, you know, if this, if the kind of the big board ADP holds into best ball mania, like what that draft landscape might do. And and my point there is that the top quarterbacks are going to be more expensive if that ADP holds than they were last year, um, like potentially quite a bit more expensive and, and kind of a whole tier might finish up like a couple rounds before it did last year where you know maybe it's going from like round two to four instead of rounds like three to six yeah my initial inclination again like already feeling a little bit better about three quarterbacks is that it would make three quarterback a little bit more viable to still be able to spend on wide receivers early in the draft and not go super early on quarterback but it's you know, it kind of depends if they all get pushed up like throughout the whole draft, right? Because then like are just the elites going to get pushed up or is like, are you going to be taking, you know, Tua last year, where'd you take him? Like 11, 10, like is he going to start going around? Yeah. Like some, someone similar. Um, so I think that's the big thing. The other thing I know last year in our ranks on ETRs, we just had 
the gap between the elite quarterbacks and the mid-tier quarterbacks like way wider than the market. And we struggled with this. And in retrospect, it turned out to be right. I wish we leaned into it a little bit more, but um, that'll be kind of interesting to see. Like it's kind of the gap between them. Like I still think like Hertz and Allen super early might be worth it. I get a little bit more squeamish when it's like round three, Joe Burrow, you know, Lawrence is the one who jumps out to me. It's like, what are we really getting with Lawrence? Is it any different than like Dak or Watson or? Yeah, it's like, it's a really fun breakout pick and bet, but I mean, he's, I'm looking at the final ADP from there and he went like more than two rounds ahead of Dak, like about two rounds, two full rounds ahead of Dak Watson, which is like, okay, that's, that's, um, that's much for sure. Yeah. So that that's the one I'd be careful. It's like, hey, there's a guy here that is priced like this because he can do something that no one else in the quarterback pool can do. He's Jalen Hurts, right? You know, and there are actually a couple other people, but they're all priced like this too. So I'm I'm gonna take him. I'm I'm fine with that. The it's like this guy can do things that lots of other quarterbacks in the pool can do if he doesn't have this incredible third year breakout, is where I'm like, well then I'm you know, I wish him well this year, but I, I don't think I'll be betting on that all that that often because it's really pricey to do so. Yeah, and that's where if you took Watson and did a three quarterback build, that seems like way better than a two quarterback build with Lawrence with his draft. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and you exactly. You're, I wouldn't say you have to do two quarterback build if you draft Lawrence, but if you're taking one that early, you probably want. You probably should because two. you've yeah. made. It's that's a kind of draft like you're right thing. You've now spent so much draft capital on this guy. You've you've taken him with the idea that he basically has to turn in this type of season. So play it like he did, you know. Um, all right, let's talk about roster construction. Uh, God, I mean, Leone, I don't know if you've seen, but like Mo, like Fancy Mojo is literally like. I don't know if you call it subtweeting because it's like positive, but he's like basically holding my team up is like uh, to the running back bros. Like there's still hope. Pat Corain <laughs> gave us hope that we can still draft running backs early. Dude, <laughs> the ship chasing guys have saved the running back position. I mean, it is uh, it's tough out there for the, the early running back drafters right now. Yeah. So last year, in particular. And again, when you chop up the positional data, it's tough because it's so driven by the individual performances. I mean, like all the analysis I am, especially over one year, probably would be better over multiple years, but we kind of just do one year at a time. But last year, it was so stark that the the less draft capital you spent at running back, the better you did. And conversely, the more draft capital you spent at wide receiver, the better you did. The hyper-fragile teams overall didn't do that great, especially like the super hyper-fragile four RB teams because, you know, the best wide receiver teams, you just needed some early investment. And then you probably were taking like six to eight. I, I always lean more like seven over six, but some of the six teams did better than I expected. Hmm. And like the teams that drafted like nine, 10, the quantity over quality approach, and I preached that in the past, didn't really work last year on the whole. Um, it has in, in previous seasons, but definitely not last year. And like I said, this was one of the ones that translated to the the playoffs quite a bit too. Um, you know, a lot of the roster construction stuff, especially at quarterback and tight end, it was kind of like 
once you reach the estimated playoff win rates, it, there just wasn't like huge separations, but at running back, there's just a super clear trend, both in the regular season and in the, the, the postseason. And basically teams that rostered between five and seven and were in the bottom 50% in terms of like overall spending at the position. And I kind of came up with a, a draft capital metric for, for each draft slot. So that way earlier picks are way higher decrease linearly. It's the higher, it's like auction values. Like you guys are familiar with exactly, like, you know, if you're in an auction, the top picks go for a ton and then it falls off pretty quickly. Yeah. So that was um, definitely a thing. And then looking at some of these top teams, there are some that spent at running back. Most of them spent less at running back. There's a lot of teams like your teams among the top teams, Pat, that were in like that third running back bucket, which is like if you bucketed all the running back draft capital spent into five buckets, so groups of 20%, with bucket one mean you spent the most, bucket five yeah. you spent the least. Um, four and five were by far the best. Again, the, the less spending, the better you did. But when you put it all together, there were a lot of teams in – bucket three was actually kind of like one of the most popular buckets among the top, top teams. The thing is they just all still spent at wide receiver. Um, and I think you did it right. Like we kind of talk about it a lot, but you can take running backs early. You can take a lot of running backs, but you can't do both sort of thing. And right. You, despite start, I think you, you started RBRB, but you got closing line value on both those running backs and your, Overall running back spending was still bucket three, despite starting RBRB. I took Ramondre in the 10th as my third running back, which to get Ramondre in the 10th was was a blessing. But um, also, you know, we joked around on uh, uh, Establish the Edge, I guess, in 2021, where, you know, I was calling it the Hyper Rojo strategy, where at the yeah. time I was taking, I would, I'd go running back, running back. Uh, and then my third running back would be Ronald Jones in like the 10th round. But it wasn't, it was a joke, but it wasn't a joke, which is that I kind of like that build where you don't take your third running back until really late because it allows you, you're not going to completely make up for, for the two, for the double detour at the very top, but you can at least, you know, make sure you're not completely behind the eight ball at wide receiver if you do that. Yeah. And you were able to grab, you know, a fifth running back while doing that. And you know, you took, shot on the Mostert Michelle combo late. If you had to just pick one, you know, that possibly could have gone the wrong way. Yeah. Although I did pick Mostert first, so maybe maybe well, I shouldn't have taken Michelle. <laughs> should have gone. Um and well you know so really I'm in blown people's minds with a full hyper fragile victory. <laughs> oh man. Uh yeah, I mean, people are, are holding up my team saying, you know, this is the the robust running back bros are back. I'm screaming to you guys in Discord, bucket three. I was bucket three. So <laughs> I... <laughs> but like jokes aside, I think one, people probably don't realize like teams are way over investing at running back. So Sam Sherman and I did a pod and he had a lot of research over like running back versus wide receiver scoring in the flex and like spike weeks and stuff. And we were like, okay, so maybe there's some, the running backs aren't as bad as we make them out to be, but the data is still showing that you should draft wide receivers early. So like, why is it? And we kind of were like, maybe just pure positional scarcity, right? Like if they're equally to be used in the flex, 
you would start three and a, roughly three and a half wide receivers a week and two and a half running backs. Like if you expand that to your, that ratio out, like in apply it to draft capital, that's still like a lot more wide receiver spending, right? It's 40% more wide receiver spending that you should do purely based on positional scarcity. So I looked at that in the article and what I found that was interesting was one, if you use that 40% more spending as like a split point and just say teams that were under that were running back heavy and teams that were over that were wide receiver heavy, 56% of all teams drafted were running back heavy. So Hmm. people are on positional scarcity alone spending too much on running backs. But then even accounting for that, I didn't see any convergence on that ratio. The wide receiver heavier teams were the better that they did in both the regular season. So even if you draft purely, even if you said like, I'm going to draft based purely on positional scarcity and someone said, nope, I'm still going to tilt towards the wide receiver. The second guy does better. Last year, the second guy did better. Yeah. Um, I I did, which is an important caveat. I mean, last year was an awesome year for zero running back. It was a, it was a good year for wide receiver heavy drafters. And that might not always be the case. Yeah. And I'll be interested to see how people draft this year, but it's kind of like, if that's probably better and less people are doing it, it's, it's really good. Yeah, for, yeah, that's true. Standpoint. That's actually really interesting that less people were doing it last year because last year we were hearing about, I mean, and it was true, like wide receivers are going earlier than ever. What the, you know, the, the you guys have ruined the, the draft rooms, what's going on. And yet in that environment, people were still spending too much at the running back position. So this year when you go in and it feels super wide receiver heavy, I would caution you to to go, hey, I got a zig, man. Everybody's zagging. I got a zig. I'm going to running back. Maybe everyone is kind of moving towards a more efficient market. So it's okay to go running back, running back or something. But then I would still be operating under the premise if you do that. All right, I'm way behind now. I have to chase, chase, chase and make sure I don't get locked out of wide receiver. That would be the way I would think through it. I think so. You can only take so many shots at running back. Like If you start running back, running back, and then there's amazing running back value in round eight or round seven, like you might not be able to pull the trigger because again, you can just only devote so much People capital do. to the position. So I do think like those rooms are beatable, but you have to be more thoughtful about yes. it. Um, one one where, thing I think about is like people, I think there's a kind of a, in snake drafts, I don't think people have the same kind of budget mindset that you do if you're in an auction where you like, if you spend you know, a hundred dollars on two running backs of a $200 budget, which is roughly what you've done. If you go running back, running back, then a running back comes up for 20 bucks who you are like, he should be 25. You're probably not bidding, you know, because you're, you're like, I have a hundred dollars left. Like you're sitting, you're looking at your, your max bids pretty low. Like you've got two whole players on your roster. Everyone else has got like five or six. You've been sitting around waiting for values. It's just easier to keep in mind that you are actually now in a position of weakness because you've you've overloaded your position, um, which is okay. You just need to play it smart from there. But I think people, it's easier to lose sight of it because you're like, hey, this guy's 10 picks past ADP. I have to take him in the sixth. It's like, no, you don't because he's a running back and you went running back, running back. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely need to be cognizant of like how all the lovers work together. Um but yeah, One it'll be thing- interesting to see. I, I, I'm interested to see what the field does. I do kind of think that 
drafting a little bit later in the seasons, probably better overall where you just get more casuals in there that just really don't understand what you're saying. And those people I think are very likely to overspend at running back and have no idea that they're doing it while they're doing it. That's interesting. One, one thing I've been thinking about is the rooms get more wide receiver heavy is I think it, I think it makes hyper fragile tougher and, and this is hyper fragile. now had a couple bad seasons two years ago, running back, running back was dominant in the regular season. Last year it was not very good. Um, but that could be just kind of fluky. We'll see. Um, but hyper fragiles now had a couple bad years in a row. I think it was and good two years ago. It, it, it wasn't good in ago. 2021. Um, it, it, it was uh, good. The data in 2020. I looked at it was, it was good. The, two seasons before BBM three. So BBM one, BBM two, it did, did fairly okay. well but for, okay. for the data that we looked at. Okay. It did well. One thing that I've been wondering with hyper fragile is if, if it's maybe a bit more like susceptible to the rooms becoming more wide receiver heavy, if that makes sense, where in hyper fragile, you're saying I'm basically done at running back early on. So you have no potential to get, sliding running back values in like the late single digits, the early double digit rounds. And you're also a little bit exposed if the room just gobbles up wide receiver through the single digit rounds, because you're sitting there in the early double digit rounds, that's when you need to be tacking on all of that quantity. And so I've actually, I'm, I'm still pretty open to, you know, running back, running back starts. Um, even if the room rooms continue to get very wide receiver heavy, I think those will still be viable if you play it right. But the hyper fragile where you're just like completely done at running back after the early rounds, maybe you tack one more on later. I, I think the rooms are making that strategy like way tougher to pull off. Yeah. I don't think you can do like three or four anymore in like the first five rounds. You know, I think you got to do two and then, you could maybe just do four if it was like two, two very early, and then like maybe yeah, you two, can do that. two at like around like Romandre types, like maybe yeah. nine and ten. Um, I don't think you, you can grab ever like do... Connor and Penny and pair that with the you know two running backs in the first in like rounds two and three or something. That that'd be interesting. I think part of it is, I think with any draft strategy, you can't be like too far from the market, even if the market's wrong. If that makes sense. So like. Hyper fragile, I think, worked better when people were more running back heavy, even though it seems like those you want to zig and zag because people were not beating you at wide receiver because they were over investing in running back. And you were actually kind of like under investing in running back while right. you were zigging, actually. Yeah. And then the wide receiver, well, like as you mentioned, you were still getting very startable wide receivers and then it's easy in the very late rounds i mean dude we're yeah. talking bbm one i mean i hate these are like outliers but like claypool and t higgins were like last three round picks in BBM one. Like, yeah. like garrett wilson last year we're talking about how amazing of a value that was because he went around 11 like these guys were going i mean it's a little different garrett wilson was a better prospect with way better draft capital so that, that might not be fair but the but t. in higgins general was the first pick of the of the second round i mean he's almost a first rounder yeah. So like, it's, it's very different. Um, you, you need for the quant the quantity over quality approach to work at wide receiver, you need to be able to take like 
some swings on rookie wide receivers late combined with some like Hunter Renfro types that like are for sure starting and probably going to see a lot of targets. Like that's the way it works. And even two years ago, like Amon Ra went real late and it just doesn't seem like that stuff is, is likely to happen as, as frequently. Um, I know, I know Sam Sherman was talking about like, there are like these startable wide receivers late, but I don't know. Um, Well, I think, I think, you know, one thing he was saying is that, look, I mean, there are spike weeks available in the very late rounds, but to me, the late rounds are not really what's going to save you. To me, like the late rounds are kind of like your, your spike week hunting for the playoffs. You kind of want to have your core team built before the late rounds. And to me, that was like, well, okay, if I've got a zero running back team, maybe I'm not taking seven running backs. Maybe I do just stop at six and I grab one extra wide receiver flyer and take it to, you know, eight wide receivers um, or whatever, instead of going seven and seven or something like that. Um, But yeah, I don't know that, that, that extra wide receiver dart throw in the very last round is, is going to make it worth overspending at the running back position. Yeah. And again, just bringing it back, like you just can't be too far off from what the market is doing. If you're in like a slightly wide receiver heavy room, it's fine. But if everybody's wide receiver heavy, two or three of those teams are going to get really good running back values, just like you did, in addition to being wide receiver heavy, right? Like, I think that's the key. Yeah, it's it's like, what can you get? What is available here that is also available later in the draft? And what can you get here that is not available later in the draft? And increasingly, the way the rooms are creating it is that if you pass on the wide receiver firepower early in the draft that's not coming around again but the running back values are getting better because everyone's gobbling up the wide receivers so now you're dealing with teams that are pretty strong at running back way stronger than like a zero running back team would have been five years ago you know that team would have been like drafting basically handcuffed types or like lower end committee types guys who were going in the the 12th round of the draft josh jacobs in round eight they're drafting yeah disgusting stuff like that yeah, you know, they're doing, but no, seriously, I mean, that's, you know, you were obviously uh, telling us we jumped the shark when we didn't want to draft Josh Jacobs. And it turned out we had, in fact, jumped the shark. But like that type of player has not typically been available in no. round to the point that like I still have a bias against that type of player because I'm so used to having to overpay for a Josh Jacobs, you know, in round two or, or maybe even around four. But when they when that type of player falls to round seven or something, it creates a massive opportunity for those sharp enough to see it where you can yeah. you can go wide receiver heavy and then you can kind of have your cake and eat it, too, because you're getting guys who have starting jobs from week one, which has sort of been one of the main criticisms of zero running back and wide receiver have heavy drafting builds is like, dude, who's your who's your running back one? Who's your running back two? Well, now it's like the guy with the starting job. And I also have a bunch yeah. of other running backs, too. The, I think like the, we have to talk about your biases and and I share them is like rethink like drafting based on archetypes or at least changing what the archetypes are, you know, like gross dead zone running back is now free starting, free starting running back, you know, yeah like like you gotta, you gotta free starting running back when wide receiver has kind of started to dry up. But one of the things I looked at in the article, like kind of digging into why running back early was so bad. I kind of, part of the reason why early in the off season, 
you really increase your ability for closing line ADP value with a zero RB team, just because of the nature of the, just because of all the zero RB tenants, right? Like rookies ascending over training camp, guys getting hurt and handcuffs vaulting a bunch of spots. So Right. And running back handcuffs gain way, way more value than wide receiver handcuffs, which is another thing that's available later in the draft that is not available uh, at wide receiver. So then I compared hyper fragile, not, not even hyper fragile teams, but like the buckets of RB spending. I compared July drafts to September drafts, kind of thinking like, we'll see it matter more in September when that closing line ADP value upside dries up a little bit, the injury risk heading into the season is a little bit lower. And I actually found kind of the opposite, which was this spending stuff. It was even worse to spend on running back early, late, or it was even worse to spend on running back early in September than it was in mm. August, which kind of runs counterintuitive to what you'd expect. And as we're talking through it, I think part of the reason might be like, if you're playing with more casuals, but like kind of that mixed room, I don't know like why that, I'm not sure why well, that would be. Here's a theory. And this goes to something else in your article that I want to touch on, which is the dead roster spots. I think yeah. maybe one reason, if I was going to build a hyper-fragile team, I might be more inclined to do it in the very first drafts of Best Ball Mania. I'd go in, I'd grab three running backs, or maybe I'd do it like you suggested, you know, where I take two in the first four, and then I'll grab two before like round 11 and now now i'm done and i'm spending a bunch of draft capital on late round wide receivers who are very undervalued because you know they no one thought jonathan mingo would go you know with the 35th pick but he did and i'm gonna grab him you know in round 16 when he's gonna settle as like a round 12 pick or whatever you know what i mean and uh i have the potential to get a bunch of ADP value on guys that are kind of mispriced in that specific part of the draft. And by not spending a ton of uh, roster spots on running back in the very, very early drafts with so much chaos yet to come, I've potentially lowered my odds of having dead roster spots, which is something you found was really important not to have when you head into the playoffs. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting theory. And it kind of fits with, the tenets of a hyper fragile running back, which is like, you're just banking on picking the correct ones that stay healthy. Right. Like, and you kind of last year, even though you didn't do it that extremely, I mean, you, you picked the right running backs, which I know I don't want this to be like, pick the right players, but like there is some draft as if you're right. And then build the structure out. Of you want to get paid off. You want to get paid off when you do pick the right players. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that makes sense for sure. And I do wonder if maybe there's your RB teams in in September, again, like they, yeah, they had bad, but we had better information as far as like which running backs to actually take in the double digit rounds. Um, right. You know, like we, we probably weren't taking Chris Evans. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, we, were, we were taking Samaj right. P Ryan. Like that's a huge difference in the value of the team. Just taking the yeah. correct backup running back on Cincinnati. Right. Like, and like, just, you know, anecdotally from my own personal experience, I was taking Chris Evans and then Gretch was kind of banging the, the table for Samaji Piran, I I didn't kind of make that switch until pretty late. So I do think that's that's probably pretty helpful. Is that we all kind of get on to the right 
handcuffs, you know, or taking Isaiah Spiller end. every single draft or, or exactly, Davis yeah. price. Like, I mean, yes. Or just knowing, just knowing that like, maybe we never were taking the right guy. Cause the handcuff in San Francisco was the starter at the time. Elijah Mitchell, right? The, the starter wasn't there yet. CMC, but um, yeah, but like just knowing that like, Hey, this Tyrion Davis price guy's overpriced. Like, you know, I'm going to skip him. Just knowing which guys to skip is probably really helpful as well. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, it's hard to take, you, you need a lot to go right to take like a handcuff running back or a situational yeah. running back to then like, to not even be sure that they have the spot where a lot needs to go. Right. It's <laughs> like asking a lot and zero running back teams. They good all parts of the year. So like, I, th- I think they're, they're good all parts of the year, but I, it does start to make a little bit more sense. Like why maybe they did better closer to the season, why that's a little bit counterintuitive to what you'd expect. Cause the early running backs, it's not like there's a ton of injuries, right? Like a cup, like it, like there might be one or two that get zapped in, in a normal year. Right. Like when did you say like one or two of like the first four round pick running backs gets hurt over the off season? Yeah, that generally happens. So, like, maybe your risk isn't – I mean, that's bad. Like, that team's dead if that happens yeah. to you. Don't get me wrong. But, like, of, like, 16 running backs, like, you know, the, you, 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 if you're taking two to three, like, you still have a hyper-fragile team that's, like – the whole goal of the hyper-fragile is, like, those early running backs being the right picks and, like, Maybe that doesn't change as much as we think from early in the offseason to late in the offseason, but the the running backs we take in the double-digit rounds changes quite a bit. So one thing I've been thinking through, because there's sort of a push. Uh, Hayden Winks had some research um, that suggested basically zero running back drafters weren't taking enough running backs. Sam Sherman's had research, you know, saying, look, you know, the flex is basically a split position. It's totally fine to try to play a running back in the flex. Uh, even if you're not trying to, you probably, you know, will play a running back in the flex in a lot of weeks. Um, but your research had me kind of thinking, no, I, I still want to have a lot of wide receivers, even in zero running back builds. And part of the reason is this dead roster spot thing where when you head into the playoffs, you really do not want dead roster spots. And, you know, in zero running back, Sean and, 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 you know, has sometimes called it like a high floor strategy because what you're doing is you're, you're basically like, you're, you're taking the best players early, the wide receivers, mm-hmm. the best real-life NFL players, and then, you know, you're kind of finding this running back production through, you know, quantity, not quality, and you kind of hit on it. And actually, even if you don't end up hitting on it, you'll probably still be, like, okay because you have these incredible talents at wide receiver. But if you're going zero running back, and let's say you take seven running backs – and, you know, you have a couple early season starters who get benched, but they help you get through the early weeks. And then you've got, you know, a couple guys who are kind of committee backs who rotate in, you know, their handcuffs, maybe they have their little stretch and then they, they turn to nothing again. And by the time you get to the playoffs, you have one guy who's absolutely you've got the Rashad Penny of 2021, you know, and you've got another another guy who's emerged. You know, he's a rookie. He came on down the stretch. He's emerged as a star. And then you have a third guy who's who's still like very viable. So you've got like a really nice running back room. But you also have four guys who are basically dead. That actually strikes me as like 
a not a great situation to be in. You've burned, you know, four roster spots. I think maybe if you could have, you know, once you're in the playoffs, you'd prefer, hey, I, I wish I only had six running backs, you know, and because I only needed six of these guys to actually get through. And I really wish I had one more wide receiver spike week opportunity uh, instead of this dead roster spot. Yeah. I don't, so at least last year, you were fine taking a lot of running backs if you went zero running back. Is you just really had to make sure you were in that last bucket of running back capital spent, okay. right? Like a bottom 20 percent or bottom forty percent team. Like even in the playoffs, those teams did um, did fairly well. Like the overall expected value, if you kind of combine regular season advance rates with playoff stuff, like seven running back teams that were in that last bucket of spending did did really well. There weren't enough. I mean, I think eight's always way too high. I think seven would be the max that you would want. Um, now four running back teams, or I'm sorry, six running back teams in that last bucket did just as well. And five running back teams in that last bucket did nearly as well. So like, there's a lot of ways you can play it. Um, yeah. I guess we, I do get the, your the fact that on, seven like, didn't have roster any... spots, but Yo, go ahead. Yeah, that's the the systemic like, risk is what makes me nervous. But I think if you're drafting seven while still being in that last bucket of running back spending, the like every player you take is draft capital, right? So to still have been in that fifth bucket despite taking seven. Do you have any yeah. examples of like what a team in the yeah. fifth bucket but seven running backs would would have been? I'll give one. I but. You've you've must have drafted so many wide receivers early that like six and seven wide receiver teams where you were in that top bucket of spending did really, really well, right? I mean, they yeah, go yeah, hand yeah. in hand. The six started to see a little bit of a drop off in the playoffs, which I think speaks to your point, where like probably want seven wide receivers and having hope that you just didn't need one of those running back darts. You know, you just kind of had the right ones. Yeah. But that that's like very big edge case. But yeah, an example of a seven running back We're going for edge the, cases though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You are, but like, it is kind of crazy when, if you like, if you're MME in this contest and you look at the expected value of all your teams, like you can, you, one thing we didn't talk about too, is like the advance rate relationship to expected value and the playoff one rate, but like having a really good regular season advance rate, even though it's boring, like boosts your expected value, like a ton. And it's, 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 somewhat. let's get, let's get to that in a second. Cause I think that's important. The, um, the seven running. So here's a seven running back team that was in bucket five. So the bottom 20% of running back spending Brees hall at 54. This had to be a team drafted early. Uh, Travis Etienne at 67, James cook, 126, Cleo Herbert, 150, Ryan Robinson, 163, Zamir white, 174, TDP, 187. So that's a team okay. that was, took seven and was in the bottom of running back spending um, like a six running back version. And again, you can still take a running back early, like a six running back bucket five example would be Javante Williams at pick 30. Samaj P Ryan pick one Oh two. Someone really likes Samaj P Ryan. Wow. Rashad, Rashad white pick one fifteen. Kenneth Walker pick one twenty six. Madison one thirty nine. Carter one sixty three. So that's kind of like, a round three running back with like almost four in a row once you get to round 10. But then, uh -huh. you, so you've, you've gone from rounds, you've taken nine non-running backs by round 11, 
right? Like he went here a running back with a running back in like the third, which is yeah. kind of an interesting. And I picked these kind of at random because I didn't want them to be biased, like where they looked really good or they looked really just kind of randomly picked picked these teams. But like to get an idea of like how much other people are spending at running back, like uh, you'll love this team. A five running back bucket one team was Joe Mixon at 13, Zeke at 36, AJ Dillon at 60, Chase Edmonds at 85, Cleo Herbert at 156. You know, on the surface, that doesn't sound like that much more running back investment than like your team, but like it, it actually was. Your team was Eckler at seven, Barkley at 18, but then Ramondre 114, Moster 186, Michelle 199. You were still in the third bucket. So you were quite a ways away in terms of total draft capital spent at running back than that example I just gave. In terms of the advance rate stuff, um, you know, it sounds like making sure you're you're properly spending. Obviously, it's really important for the playoffs. It's also really important for getting teams to the playoffs in the first place. Um, the way I think about it is like, you know, maybe maybe trying to finish second in your in your league is sort of optimal because you're able to do maybe take a couple more things and slide them into the optimize for the playoff bucket. I am biased because the team that won for me did finish second in its league, but also, you know. If it finishes third, it's a different it's a different story for me. So you can't push it too much. And you actually found that and, – and honestly, my guess would be that this year we probably underrate advance rate and how important it is because there's about to probably be another push of, hey, you really got to make sure you're game stacking and team stacking and, you know, you got to be thinking about week 17. The natural thing to get lost in the shuffle there is advance rate but your research suggested that it really should not get lost. Right. So the, if you are comparing the impact on the expected value of a team based on changes in their finals win rate versus changes in their regular season advance rate, a 10% increase in regular season advance rate from 16.7% on randomness to 18.3% has the same impact on your expected value as a 50% increase in your, your expected finals win rate, taking that from 0.21% to 0.32%. So obviously, if you're optimizing for a finals win rate, you probably also had better than expected quarterfinals and semifinals win rates. So I don't think that's like a perfect comparison. Because you, you stacked your quarterbacks, which helps. Yeah. Both. Yeah. So I think that biases the regular season advance rate, but like just seeing those numbers the way they are, I think is like, like getting a team there is important. And kind of one of my pet peeves with some of the best ball analysis is like, well, we just want a really good team when we get there. Like, well, what if this team makes it though? What if this team makes it through? And like, you can't just chop off half of the expected value equation because it's more exciting. You know what I mean? Like you can, like that's we can. part. We can, and we will, <laughs> but like, like the we're starting from from before the regular season it counts so like yeah yeah so like the odds of the team getting there has a huge impact on the expected value of the team which i think seems obvious but i think a lot of people kind of want to be like well it doesn't matter because all that matters is that you win the finals but like even a shitty shittily set up team like can just get lucky those last 3 weeks right like of course yeah it's it's less likely 
to win. Well, but like, and it's it, you know, like if the field gets bigger, the final field gets bigger too, you know, and it's like the odds that you kind of land on this random assortment of spike weeks in the final round with this, like basically team that we would say is, is not constructed well, but it was constructed to advance. It gets there and then it pops off randomly without any correlation. The odds of that happening are low, but as the field advance, it is the final field size increases. And I think it probably will be higher than 470 this year. The odds that there is a team like that goes up, you know, it's kind of like the Millie maker thing where it's like, Obviously, it's not going to be as big as the millimaker, but you know, you'll see some random. You don't need correlation as much because it's kind of like I'm just going to hope that I hit on a bunch of random stuff all happening at the same time. Yeah, and like ideally, you're doing both, right? Like it's not like stacking's bad for your regular season advancer. In fact, it's good, and it gets trippy. I'm trying to like kind of tease out like if you're in a draft, like how do you decide whether to stack or take the ADP value? And it's it's tough mm. because ADP value is like cumulative, right? So it's like at any one pick, you'd much rather stack than have like, you, you'd take a, a loss of a round of ADP value to complete a stack, right? But like you do that three or four times, then you start to get in trouble. So like, you want to kind of try and do both. That's where I think like your article about like being flexible if people snipe you makes a lot of sense. And I do think like, if you want to talk about building super teams, I think it's like kind of waiting and, and trying to build the conjunction. But the best expected value of a team if you were just solely looking at their stacking tendencies and nothing else would be two quarterbacks rostered both teams stacked both games stacked week 17 your expected value of that team's 31 dollars and 28 cents right if you look at the adp value you got live in your draft so not closing line adp value if you looked at the adp value you got live in your draft if you were in the top 10 percent of teams your expected value is $33.60, which is, you know, even higher. If you were in bucket two, it's $30.12. So obviously we're trying to build teams that are like high ADP capital buckets and stacking. But if you look at purely the relationship, like it's pretty close in terms of the value of both. And just to give some idea on what that bucket means. So um, the top ADP, I'll, I'll switch to ADP value instead of capital because just a little bit more intuitive to understand. But top 10% of teams on average had about 75 spots of ADP value gained, which so is like literal, like rot, like, you yeah, know, you took you this just, guy at 75, you know, instead he was ADP was 70. That's five. Yes. If you just added all that up for your picks so 75, I mean, that's a lot. That's like five to six rounds over the course of a draft bucket two drops significantly. But remember that expected value is still like over $30. That's 26 mm. round or 26 spots of ADP value. Most teams while drafting live are getting like pretty, you know, negative ADP value, right? Like they're mo most teams aren't like ahead of ADP value because they're just doing different things and just they're the way the draft falls. So like, like bucket three of ADP value, which had an EV of like $26 was basically netting even, you know, or a little bit better than even in yeah. terms of the added up ADP of your players at the time of the draft. And you, you added up what picks they were taken. So it doesn't take a ton. You can definitely do both, but I do think it's, I just think overall the, the relationship's interesting. And I think the advance rate stuff's boring, but like, well, let's say, let's say I was just like, look, 
you know, this is jump the shark. Uh, the, I'm just going to, I'm going to get there. I'm just going to get there and we'll figure it out. And the edge, sure, I'd love to game stack and everything, but everybody's doing that and they're reaching all over the place to do it. And I'm just going to scoop value and I'm going to get a couple teams to the finals and one of them's going to take it down. How would I do that? How do I so, make the finals, Mike? <laughs> if you want to just get to like the out of the regular season, just yeah, get- yeah, yeah. Just not so, to get to the finals, but to get to the playoffs. How do I just maximize I mean, my advance rate? Do I scoop you value? A, you'd, you'd scoop a ton of value and you'd take two quarterbacks and you'd spend early at early enough at wide receiver. Again, I don't want to like overfit to last year, but it's very clear that you're going to need to spend decently at wide receiver, even if it's not as dramatic as last year. So I think those are like the three biggest things like maximize your ADP value would probably only take two quarterbacks. And, but if that's like, if you're purely only caring about getting there, which again, the reason why this stuff works and it's nuanced, like we kind of argue back and forth on advance rate versus playoff optimization, but like, it's pretty easy to do a little bit of both. Like last year, I underestimated the impact of the game stacking. I still did it because there really wasn't a reason not to, right? Like it diversified me. I wasn't really reaching too much. So you can definitely do both. Um, Like I had a, I had a, in a super flex draft last night, I was doing like four at one time because I I haven't done as many as I wanted. I was just like, let's go for it. And, uh, you know, so I'm going back and forth and I, I was like, okay, who do I take here? And Mike Williams was sitting at the top of the queue. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I was like, oh, this team has Herbert. <laughs> so, you know, you can you can just stumble on some stacks if you you don't have to reach, you know. And that's kind of the best situation to be in where you just take a guy who's maybe fallen a couple picks past ADP. Um, and that- so I, I would probably prioritize stacking a little more than that uh, if you're just, you know, doing one draft at a time and you can actually plan it out. But definitely. I, you do want to make sure you're still getting ADP value, even if you're stacking. And the two two things I want to note on that. One, I did look at like the EV once you make the playoffs of like, if you took like the best stacking configuration, but like not the hundredth percentile, because it's like just somewhat unrealistic. Everyone would be able to do that. I'd say about like getting 30 teams through that are very well optimized in stacking is about the equivalent as getting through 35 teams that are just random. Mm. Just, just a, just that, that have equal to have, they're not bad or good neutral. I should say neutral, not random, like 30, 35 neutral teams um, was kind of the relationship. Which isn't like as many, like that's, that's not as big of, of an advantage for your perfectly curated teams as I would have hoped. Right. It's I, I did it. I did all my teams absolutely perfect and a basically a neutral. Well, we'll say like 85th percentile, not absolutely. Okay. Perfect, not perfect. Like not perfect. 80, but I mean, that's 80, good. If you, yeah. all your teams were 85th percentile, that's incredible. And then someone just like has a slightly better than expected advance rate and they've, they've matched you. So I think the lesson is don't sacrifice too much advance rate to get those to get all your teams really, really well built. You still want to have, I mean, cause, and it is possible, right? Like I had a pretty good advance rate last year and, and that obviously was helped by the fact that wide receiver heavy teams had very good advance rates last year. That's not always going to be the case, but um, you know, there are ways to, to do both. I think. 
Yeah, and the, one other the other point I wanted to make too, like we joke about like just pick the right players, but I do think like there's this skill in terms of um in two spots. One just like having good pronostication for like what's going to happen over the course of the season. And you know, like the quarterbacks you took Pat were like all quarterbacks that ETR had ranked ahead of ADP value. So like at some point I want to look at like ETR value versus ADP value. Um, so we just don't have it saved by every day of the season like we do for ADP value. Mm-hmm. But And so I think there's something to – also, you took guys like you kind of knew you would get closing line on. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like Godwin was one where it was kind of like we know we'll take him in round six now because we just know, right, know right. he's going to be round five like when the health reports get better or, or whatever. So I think there's some skill in knowing the closing line value you're going to get. Like your team by like our modeling looks way better on closing line value than – ADP value at the time of the draft. And I think probably truth somewhere in the middle with that. Um, but like you took the right types of players to get closing line ADP value. The other thing too, is you took two running backs that you liked, like you wrote about them in your article on legendary running back upside and like, which ones are worth drafting and not. And the two you took, you had worth drafting. So you fit them into a strategy that made a ton of sense. So it's like, maybe hyper fragile teams overall didn't do well, but like a lot of those teams maybe weren't taking the right types of running backs, you know? Um, Right. And I didn't do a lot of running back, running back starts. I think I did about, you know, they were on 20% of my teams or something. So, you know, it wasn't like I never did it. Yeah. But, but I did mostly, I think I was about quarter zero running back, a quarter hero running back. Um, About a fifth of my teams were running back, running back. So I mixed up my strategies. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you have, if you happen to have written an article about how Austin Eckler and Saquon Barkley are targets and you draft Austin Eckler a little behind ADP and Saquon Barkley comes to you in the mid second, like, yeah, you like both guys, take both guys. You can figure it out after the fact. I think the way I think about it, like I said, is like, now I'm like, okay, I did a thing, you know, <laughs> I, I don't always do this thing. And now, and it's, and it changes, I have changed my draft. My draft is now yeah. quite different than if I took a wide receiver here. Um, but that's okay. You can, you can figure it out. Do you have any rules of thumb on the, cause we've talked about like running back, you know, how much do we spend on running back? How much do we spend on running back? But it seems pretty clear that the more important thing is being strong at wide receiver. I think you even said before, was, I believe this was before we start recording, but some of the teams that kind of spent a lot at running back, some of them were okay because they were also really strong at wide receiver. And so maybe we're almost taking this question backwards. Like, it doesn't really matter so much about what you do at running back. What matters is, do you have enough firepower at wide receiver where you start the most of any position? If you're not strong there, you're probably in trouble. Do you have any like rules of thumb for ways to think about it? I was, I believe it, my was four through nine was one thing that I put in my road world article is, is kind of a rule of thumb, make sure you have four through nine, but you know, four through nine, if, if you, if you take it and round, uh, what six, seven, eight, nine? That's pretty different than if you go one, two, three, four. So you know, to your draft capital equation, you know, there's probably probably smarter ways to think through it than just say, oh, you know, try to four through nine. Yeah, I mean, at least last year, wide receiver spending was king. Like, if you look at the top thirty teams by kind of the way our our we kind of modeled what would be we set up four different models. Like, what would this team's expected regular season advance rate be? And then what would their quarterfinals advance rate be based on their stack and setup for 
for week 15. Same thing for week 16. Even if they did it on accident and game stacked, we counted that for them because maybe they did it on purpose. And then for week 17. So we kind of had like four different models and then combine those to like rank the teams. And we came up with the top 30 teams. And yeah, all of these teams for the most part, I think there's only one team that wasn't in the top there are two teams that weren't in the top two buckets of wide receiver spending and most of them were in wide receiver bucket one. So that was kind of like, if you just scroll through that, that was most variable of the teams that weren't in the top bucket of wide receiver spending that still made this, they had an elite tight end, you know, they're in that first bucket of tight ends. Interesting. So it kind of seems like they have Kelsey, I guess, is that that's what you mean? They had Kelsey. Probably, but Andrews went early enough that they could have drafted Andrews and it, it would have okay. counted. Um, because again, this is at the time of the draft, not based on what they actually did, is what right, we're trying right. to accomplish. So again, all based on last year, it could change, but it does seem like yeah, you want that pass catcher upside early, and then quarterback and running back are almost like it's more like fitting those around your wide receiver tight end pass catchers and there's stuff that you'd prefer to do, but it's really like if you can make, if you can get enough pass catcher upside, you can kind of mix and match however you want at quarterback and running back. Um, I will say as far as stacks go, all of these teams except one had at least two quarterbacks team stacked mm. in, in some way. So that's really important. And these, the, these are the teams you're referencing are teams the, the model has graded really highly. Is that right? Yeah, the top 30 teams in terms of like overall expected value at the time okay. of their drafts. Okay. And as far as game stack goes, you know, not all of them had week 17 game stacks, but most of them did. You kind of get a mix of like zero, one or two in terms of number of quarterbacks that were game stacked. And when we say game stacked, we mean you had a pass, same team pass catcher and an opposing team skill player. So, you know, the game stacks definitely helped the teams that were up there, but they weren't like absolutely mandatory to get the the best EV. One other thing I just want to ask you about real quick, because in the article you didn't include with the, the team stacking the running back. And I actually kind of like going quarterback running back to some extent. I won't force it. But like, I don't mind it at all. And I kind of like it. Um, and I did on my team, I had uh, Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley, which did not help me. Uh, Daniel Jones didn't hit my final lineup, as we talked about earlier. Um, having Saquon obviously did help me. But, you know, the part the bet there partially is the Giants are going to be better than people think. That's yeah. it. They're gonna, it's going to help me advance. The Giants will be better than people think. That's going to help me advance. And I also do think there's something to the idea, and this actually did play out. Now, it didn't ultimately help me, but Saquon helped me get to the final, and then he busted. And who went off? Daniel Jones. And I think there's something to that. You know, we talk about, like, ping-ponging. You can try to ping-pong through the playoffs where you've got different quarterback stacks. But if you've got a quarterback and a running back, you know, that can potentially help you ping-pong through the playoffs as well, it didn't work out this way, but the Eagles are kind of an example of, of like how this could play out where they, you know, some weeks it was Miles Sanders weeks. Unfortunately, some weeks it was kind of Kenny Gainwell or Boston Scott weeks, which, you know, puts a hole in this. But and then some weeks it was Jalen Hurts weeks. So there's something there that that kind of gets my my gears turning. I, I know you kind of like explicitly didn't 
look at it in the data. But what do you think about kind of quarterback running back stuff? Yeah, I think, you know, they're overall positively correlated. I think it makes sense to do. I'm, I didn't really want to, I ended up counting it in our, in our model for like regular season stuff, regular season advance rate and, and like total team stacked players. But then I kind of separated out number of quarterback pass catcher stacks. And the reason for that is just they're, they're positively correlated. So like to your point, if you think an offense is going to do really well, everyone's probably going to do really well. And you've got a good mix of players based on like who does well when. And I, I do think that's an interesting thing to look into too, is like kind of how to smooth out your distributions over the course of the season. The reason I didn't count it for the playoffs, just talking with Herzig who helped me set up some of this stuff, just kind of thinking that that's probably not the best combination to have for the high, high end upside yeah. in a, in a single week. So that's it's probably negative correlation for that, but maybe it's right. negative correlation that kind of helps because it, you can get leverage on, the high upside running back who got you there or whatever. Yeah. And to be clear, when we say negatively correlated, they are positively correlated on a game by game basis. I don't think that's true for the 90th percentile outcomes though. And like I don't either. That's yeah. That's what we're talking about. Cause sometimes correlation gets thrown out there and it's like, well, there's overall correlation and then there's correlation for what we're looking for. And I don't think they're positively correlated for what we're looking for to finish top one out of 470 in the finals. Agreed. All right, let's uh, let's head towards the end here. One more thing. So, you know, I I have to commend you here on just like a very objective, you know, data based approach to this. I did sense some some bias here, some some really disgusting stuff in your defense of slow drafts. Slow drafts, as everyone knows, are horrible, and no one should do them. And yet, you said they're fine. What is this? Oh man, slow drafts. So. Basically, all right, we found like closing line ADP value, right, is, is super important to your team's ability to advance out of the regular season and then also into the playoffs. It matters a little bit. So I kind of looked at slow draft versus fast draft by month and like likelihood of getting closing line ADP value. And there just wasn't that much difference between the two. There's just, you're probably slightly worse off doing slow draft in terms of your ability to get ADP value. I guess you could, as well. I guess you could argue that the other people, maybe, maybe your ADP value is the same, but like there's less dead teams. But even kind of when I looked at that, there wasn't like a huge, didn't even kind of seem like when I looked at like our, model for advancing and out of the regular season and then like scaling that for your for your league it didn't seem to me like there was anything like super tangible there so i'd prefer I mean, fast drafts but i'm like i was like a, like i like didn't i actively didn't do slow drafts last year and i would not make that decision this year like i'd be fine if all i could do was slow drafts i'd be fine doing it and not feeling like i'm minus ev doing so well, my hope is that you and a bunch of other sharp people who are busy will do all the slow drafts because uh, I don't really like slow drafts. But I do, you know, as much I've made fun of Pete, who's got a million slow drafts going right now. Um, but like he's got big board drafts that have stretched into, you know, the weeks just ahead of the NFL draft, which actually is kind of an advantage. Like everyone, all the fast draft people. Definitely are an advantage. Yeah. yeah. So you want to talk about closing line value. I mean, the slow drafters are the ones who are going to get closing line value on the big board. Yeah, absolutely. 
Joe I mean, not in every case, right? Like they're going to miss guys who rock it up, but they're going to make, they're going to have more information of, you know, who to take late and it's, it can be an advantage. Yeah. Less, less Trey Lance picks for Peter as Brock Purdy's health sounds better and better. Let, we'll see. I, I, that, he's he might be past he's that continuing to double draft now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, well, are we, are we past the point? I don't wow. know if he's to the 18th round. Yet. If Peter's in the league, we're past that point. But yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. I think that'll do it. Uh, Leone, tell the people what you guys going got going on at Established Run, including this article that drops that drops tomorrow. Yeah, part four drops tomorrow at Establish the Run. You can find it in our header menu under NFL. Look for Leone Best Ball Manifesto. Post NFL direct. I mean, we've already got all our rankings live for the underdog superflex stuff but we'll have them all updated with the, once the actual NFL draft occurs and best ball mania four gets announced. So pretty pumped for that. And just be on the lookout for dynasty stuff. And Miko for us is grinding a lot of our dynasty rankings. And I'm sure we'll have a show um, post NFL draft, me, him and Silva, and we'll all yell at each other and that'll be fun. Yeah. And, and uh, I've been enjoying the market Mondays that uh, Levitan does for the best ball uh you know, the best ball market and everything. So if you're not, if you guys aren't subscribed to Established Run, what are you doing? Uh, I will have, this will be the last pod that I do for at least a week. Uh, I may try to squeeze one in before the NFL draft, but uh, if not, still uh, going to have ton of ton of coverage coming for you after the draft. Pretty excited for the NFL draft here, Leone. It'll, it'll be a fun ride. Um, all right. That'll do it. Make sure to uh, sign up for legendaryupside.com. I am, oh, I, I will say, I'm doing a 30 day trial right now. I'm going to take that down to seven after the NFL draft. So if you want that sweet, sweet 30 day trial, go ahead and sign up uh, right now. But uh, we'll see you guys later. Thanks so much for watching.